The king is coming. I wonder if that has any effect on you, that statement, either negatively or positively. Uh, For the first time in um, most of our lifetimes, we have an earthly king, don't we? But I promise you that the king that Micah is prophesying about is greater than any earthly king we could ever have known. No offence to to King Charles, but no earthly king we could ever have known or any king that we could ever imagine. This king that Micah is prophesying about is greater. And my conviction is that we vastly underestimate the greatness and the awesomeness of King Jesus, the king that is coming again one day. And I think we also underestimate how desperately we need him to come. The title of my message today is The King is Coming Again One Day, but his kingdom is in you now. And we're looking at Micah chapter 3 to 5, and that is the promise. There is a king coming, and his name is Jesus. And my prayer is that by the end of this message, we would understand that not only is there a king coming back, but his kingdom is in every one of us who has believed in him as our Lord and Saviour. Now, there's three main parts of the passage today. Firstly, there's a description of the people's sin. Secondly, um, there's prophecy about the judgment that's going to come on them as a result. And prophecy is um, essentially a prediction of the future. And then thirdly, there's prophecy about God's rescue plan, both immediately for the people who were facing judgment in kind of the medium term for them, but then also um, his rescue plan at the very end, what is going to happen at the end. And um, so we're going to get straight into it and we're going to start with um, what Micah had to say about the people's sin. And so we're going to start in Micah chapter 3, verse 1, and it says this. Then I said, listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, should you not embrace justice? You who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. We're going to stop there. Firstly, remember the prophetic books which Micah is are poetic. So the leaders of his people were bad, but they weren't cannibals, even though it's talking about this imagery of them tearing the flesh off people and eating it. But what this imagery is speaking to is their awful treatment of the people. The people who they were meant to be leading and caring for, they were taking advantage of them and mistreating them terribly. They're told they need to embrace justice. It also says that they hate good and they love evil. It's like the wrong way round, isn't it? We see, um, it says in Proverbs 8.13, to fear the Lord is to hate evil, but they hate good and love evil. And so it showed um, these leaders of God's people were the opposite of those who fear the Lord. They are living the opposite of how they are meant to be. Then we move to verse 5. This is what the Lord says. As for the prophets who lead my people astray, they proclaim peace if they have something to eat, but prepare to wage war against anyone who refuses to feed them. 
I wonder, do you remember the verse Simon shared last week? If you heard Simon's message, he shared a verse from chapter 2, verse 11, that says, if a liar and deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, that would be just the prophet for this people. He was essentially saying the people only wanted to hear a message from God that was a nice message, that was one that felt good for them. And this accusation is kind of coming from the same Um, direction but towards the prophets this time he's saying um, that for the right price his prophets will prophesy whatever the people want to hear if they um, yeah if they'll give the prophets something to eat the prophets will proclaim peace for them and so what a low view of God's word they have come to to reduce it to something they can just make up and say whatever people want to hear Verse 9 says, Hear this, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, who despise justice and distort all that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they look for the Lord's support and say, It's not the Lord among us. No disaster will come on us. They're doing nothing God's way, and yet they assume that God couldn't let anything bad happen to them. Now, also, if you heard Simon's message last week, you'd have heard he introduced us to three covenants that God made with his people in the Old Testament. The first covenant was the Abrahamic covenant, which was an unconditional covenant. God promised there would be um, his people in the land, and through them there would be worldwide blessing. There was the Davidic covenant which was unconditional as well God promised David that his throne would endure forever that there would always be one of his sons on the throne but then we had the Mosaic covenant and this is the law for Israel this described how the people should live in the land it was the way that they were going to live that would demonstrate to everyone around them what God was like they should have been a light to the nations around them And the whole law could be summarised as love God and love people. And this covenant was conditional. God said, if you obey these laws, things will go well for you. Um, Things in the land will be great. You'll have heaps of children and heaps of crops and life will be good. But if you ignore my ways, I'll kick you out of the promised land. And so as we've read these accusations against God's people today, we can clearly see they weren't obeying God's laws. You can hear for yourselves that they were a million miles away from loving God or loving people, which takes us to the next type of message we find in these chapters, which is Micah prophesying God's judgment on his people as a direct result of their evil behaviour. Micah tells them that God's going to stop answering their prayers. He's going to stop speaking to the prophets. It talks about Jerusalem becoming a heap of rubble. In chapter 4, he prophesies that their king will perish and that they'll be captured by Babylon, which all happened, by the way. Um, It's incredible. You can read about it in 2 Chronicles 36 and Ezra 1 and 2. You can read the words of these prophecies actually playing out. You see, God hates sin and he is just and so he must judge it. But he also loves people so much. And so the third type of prophecy in these passages is about God's grace-filled rescue plan for his people, which was immediate, 
in their immediate judgment, he was going to redeem them. In the medium term, he was going to redeem his people. And then he prophesies about the end of time as well. And prophecy, Simon talked about this last week as well. I'm stealing all his material. But he talked about how it can be like looking at a picture of a landscape where there's things, there's details in the foreground. Maybe there's a mountain in the middle ground and then there's more mountains um, in the distance. And... um, prophecy, it's like um, describing them all simultaneously. And so at times, it's moving seamlessly from describing something in the foreground to something in the distance. And that's exactly what this prophecy reads like, um, switching between how God would in the near future rescue them out of their judgment, and then when a new king, Jesus, would come as a baby in Bethlehem, And then also the end times when Jesus the King would return. And so it can seem confusing as you read through, but if you can bear that in mind, it helps you to make sense of what Mike is saying. But what's powerful as you read through these chapters for yourself is you can really see the evidence of what God is like. He is a faithful covenant God who keeps his promises and who hates sin, but who loves his people more than you could imagine. And so I'd encourage you to read it through for yourselves and notice that every time Micah prophesies some kind of judgment for his people, it's immediately followed by a promise that God will rescue them and redeem them and will bring them back to himself. It comes to a bit of a climax, though, at the start of chapter 5. So we're going to read again chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Marshal your troops now, city of troops, For a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. Now, striking someone on the cheek was a picture of humiliating them. And this ruler that Micah is prophesying about is Judah's king, Zedekiah. Now, Zedekiah was the last king of Judah before Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon destroyed his kingdom. And then remember, we talked about the Davidic covenant where God promised there will always be a son of David on the throne. And so there's kind of this moment of what's going to happen? Zedekiah's going to go. And then we come to verse 2. It says, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. In verse 4, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Bethlehem was a really small, insignificant town, about five miles southwest of Jerusalem. And here, Micah is prophesying that it will be a place that a new ruler comes from or a new king. And these verses are actually quoted in Matthew 2, verse 6, when Herod gathers around him all the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he asks them, where is the Messiah going to be born? He's desperate to find this promised king. And um, these are the verses they refer to. They refer to Micah's prophecy. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. And so it's clear that that's who Micah is talking about in these verses. He's talking about King Jesus. He's the new ruler that's coming. So this really is the climax of our passage. They have staffed up big time. God hates sin, so he will judge them, but he also loves them very much. 
so much that he promises them a new king, a king in the line of David, because that's what he had promised. But unlike the other kings they had ever known, this king wasn't going to go anywhere. This king was going to be good. This king um, was going to reign forever. And this king, King Jesus, would make all things right. And so with a king comes a kingdom. And so much of these chapters describe what Jesus' kingdom will be like. If we go to chapter 4, verse 1, it says, In the last days, which means in the end times, when Jesus returns, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. Remember, this is prophetic language. Imagine it, high and lifted up. It will be exalted above the hills, and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. He's promising to restore them back to being his people, walking in his ways, doing the things that God wants them to do, which is so far from what they have been doing. Verse 3 says, He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. He's promising that in the last days, when all they have ever known is nations trying to conquer them, that actually there's going to be peace. The weapons of war in these verses are being made into tools. There's going to be no need for them. Verse 4, everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. In that poetic language, that um, sitting under their own vine, it's an image of peace and security. These are the things of the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. And then verse 5, all the nations may walk in the name of their gods, but we will walk in the name of the Lord, our God, forever and ever Jesus' kingdom is a glorious thing with all the peace and the goodness described in these verses. And because in a good kingdom, the people need to be good, it says that God's people walk in the name of the Lord, their God, forever and ever. And it got me thinking about walking in the name of the Lord. What does that mean? Um, Going in the name of someone else is to be their representative. If you act in the name of someone, you're acting with their authority in the way that they would want you to act. It reminds me of when I was younger and at school and um, going on a school trip and we'd be instructed, you need to wear the correct uniform and you need to wear it absolutely perfectly because when you're outside of this school in your uniform, you are representing our school. Your behaviour needs to represent it. This is the best photo my dad could find of me in a school yeah. uniform. Wasn't I cute? <laughs> But there's, there was a responsibility to behave in a way and speak in a way that represents the school. And as we walk in the name of the Lord, that's how we're to live our lives, as if we are representatives of Jesus, behaving in a way and speaking in a way that he would want us to, like we're wearing the Jesus uniform. This prophecy, though, and others that we have teach us that ultimately God's kingdom isn't going to fully come until Jesus returns, until those end times that Micah prophesied about. But wherever there is a king on the throne, there's a kingdom. 
And so if you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, he is the king on the throne of your life. And so where there's a king on the throne, there's a kingdom. His kingdom is in you. And this isn't just my idea. Jesus taught his disciples this. In Luke 17, 20 to 21, Jesus said, The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Or that can be also be translated as because the kingdom of God is in you. And so that's why my title for the message today is The King is Coming Again One Day, but His Kingdom is in You Now. And so I just want to finish today by unpacking how that can and should be our reality. The key verses in these chapters of Micah that describe what our life in God's kingdom would look like, um, I think are Micah 4 verse 2, which says, He will teach us His ways so that we will walk in His paths. And then Micah 4 verse 5, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Now we could take time to go over all of the characteristics of his kingdom, and we've talked a bit about it already, but um, justice and loving good and hating evil, the opposite of what his people were doing, the love of God, the taking God's word seriously, so many things that we find in the book of Micah and in the rest of the Bible. But rather than look at the fruit that we desire in our lives, I had it on my heart that today we should look at the source of that fruit. You know, as we desire to see that fruit in our lives as we live out this kingdom, there's actually a powerful key that we need to being able to do that. And we find it in Micah 3 verse 8. Um, Micah says, But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord. The way we can successfully live out his kingdom is to continually be filled with, this, with the power of the Spirit of the Lord. We actually don't have a hope of walking in this kingdom way in the name of the Lord ex- except by the Spirit of God. A good few years ago, we drove up as a family to Todonga, um, and as we left to leave on our way home, Um, our car got a few problems. When I say we were on our way home, we actually only made it to Rotorua before the car got problems, so we weren't really near home. And when I say problems with our car, I mean the turbo broke. Um, Which at the time, you know, I don't understand much about cars. And if you had said to me, um, would it be bad if the turbo on your car broke? I would have said, probably not, because I kind of imagined it like the turbo boost on Mario Kart. You know, like, you can drive fine without it. You just wouldn't be able to do that zoom, you know, like that extra oomph. But actually, the reality of driving with a broken turbo is quite different to that. Um, There was barely any power at all. So we drove along praying every moment that there would be no traffic in front of us so that we had to slow down, praying that we wouldn't have to stop. And we actually had to get petrol at a petrol station in Bulls, and we pulled into, for some unknown reason, the petrol station on the right-hand side of the road, which meant once we'd finished getting petrol, we had to pull across a whole lane of oncoming traffic to join the lane back to Wellington. So we sat there for ages waiting for a gap that we thought would be big enough to give us time to crawl out of the junction of the petrol station and to safely get out onto the road. Simon was driving, thankfully. So finally this gap came, Simon put his foot on the accelerator and we 
crawled slowly across the lane. And unfortunately, there was a truck coming much faster than we were moving from the other way. Um, Simon thankfully managed to pull into the middle of the road, back around into the petrol station. We stopped, regathered our nerves and tried again. Thankfully, we got home safely and we lived to tell the tale. We made memories and we have a story, don't we? But I wonder if we sometimes view the Spirit of God a bit like I viewed the turbo in our car. You know, it probably just gives us some extra oomph and power, right? But we can get on without it. The reality is, though, we can barely crawl along by ourselves without the Spirit of God. And why would we settle for that? If we want to live out God's kingdom now, we need to live in the power of the Spirit. The contrast in Micah was stark. God's people living their own way, being motivated by a love of money and greed and selfishness, contrasted with Micah, filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord. So here are some things that you can expect when you're filled with the Spirit. I'm just going to read a few verses out to you, and um, there'll be a slide at the end so that you can jot these down, because what I'd love for us to do is um, this week to meditate on these scriptures to really seek God, um, hungry for us to be filled with the power of the Spirit and for what that looks like. So John 14, 26 says, But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Romans 8, 5 to 6 says, Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. Galatians 5, 16 says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Galatians 5:22 to 25 but the fruit of the spirit is love joy peace forbearance kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control against such things there is no law those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires since we live by the spirit let us keep in step with the spirit 2 Corinthians 3:18 and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the spirit Luke 11:13 if you then though you are evil know how to give good gifts to your children how much more will your father in heaven give the holy spirit to those who ask him an encouragement, hey, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? As we finish today, I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask for the Holy Spirit to fill us, that we would be people who live out God's kingdom by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, the King is coming back one day, but his kingdom is in you now. So as we commit ourselves to walking in the name of the Lord, I want to encourage us to be hungry for a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit to help us to live out the kingdom lives that he's called us to. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word that reveals to us your character. 
reveals to us what you're like, that shows us what is to come, this kingdom that we can look forward to, this king who is coming again. But thank you so much, God, that you didn't leave us to live these lives you've called us to live on our own, but you sent your spirit. And we want to repent today if we've been satisfied to live um, in our own strength. Without the power of the Spirit, Lord, forgive us. I pray that you would convict us today of that, Lord. Show us. Show us where we need to change. And we want to come to you humbly today and say, God, we're hungry. We're hungry for more of you in our lives. Like that verse said, that you would give us the Holy Spirit if we ask it. We're asking for it today, Lord. Fill us. Fill us again with the power of your spirit that we would live your kingdom out in this world today. We love you, Lord. We surrender ourselves to you again in Jesus' name. Amen.